Genesis 37, verse 2. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe, a robe of many colors. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to rule over us and to reign over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun and moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. When he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now and see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? The man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will we'll say a fierce animal has devoured him, and we'll see what will become of his, of the, of his dreams. When Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, cast him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand and restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and cast him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead, and their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite tra traders passed by, and they drew Joseph 
up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. They sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and moaned for, mourned for his son many days. All his sons and his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol, to my son, mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray again together. Holy Spirit, as we approach this passage of Scripture, we pray, Lord, for illumination into our hearts. We pray, Lord, that you'd help us to see the reality of what is taking place here. And though God's name is not mentioned explicitly, we pray that you would help us to see and to understand that God is everywhere in this passage. Lord, we pray that you'd help us to see this in the circumstances that Joseph faces. And we pray, Lord, that you'd help us to see this in the circumstances that we face. In our own suffering, in our own persecution. Lord, that by your grace and for your glory, we might suffer well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why do bad things happen to good people? If we're going to attempt an answer at that question, we need to begin by saying that it's the wrong question. If we consider God's holiness and our sinfulness, we should be asking instead, why do good things happen to anyone? In reality, no one is good except God alone, and we all deserve His holy and just eternal wrath. Now, we could ask the question, why did bad things happen to Jesus Christ? That's a good question. But our answer to the initial question will lead us in the direction of the answer to this question. But even still, when someone asks, why do bad things happen to good people? I think you get the gist of what's being asked. For our purposes, we'll ask it like this. Why do bad things happen to God's people? You see wicked people prospering all over the place while God's people suffer. Narrowing our, our focus even more. We know that God's people suffer. Many in our church family suffer. 
they either have suffered or are suffering or will suffer. We pray for our brothers and sisters from our church family who are suffering every week. And many of our brothers and sisters around the world are, are suffering. We, we pray for them every week as well. The, the type of suffering that, that they experience is, is worse than anything that we experience in our worst nightmares. We pray for them. We also read regularly about God's people who suffered in the scriptures. Job, King David, Jeremiah, Daniel, the Apostle Paul, all suffered horribly. And we saw this last week as well, didn't we? We began to see in the, the Toledot of, of Esau, where, where we started to answer the question. Here we saw, we saw Esau and his progeny prospering outside the promised land. And we saw from verse 1 of chapter 37 that, that Jacob and his family, his progeny, are beginning to suffer inside the promised land. Well, in our story this morning, we're looking at one of the best-known stories of, of God's people suffering in the whole Bible, Joseph. And it leaves us asking the question, why? Why is Joseph suffering? And where is God in the midst of Joseph's suffering? As I mentioned a moment ago, God, God's name is not even mentioned in this chapter. But as we'll see, God is there all the way through. The nation of Israel th throughout its history in the, in the Bible will, will regularly ask the question, where is God in our suffering? But as you read through the scriptures, as you understand the storyline of the Bible, you'll see that God is there all along, bringing things to their appointed end at their appointed time for the good of his people. So this story, this, this story of Joseph, often referred to as a novella, answers the question. The story of Joseph serves as the focal point for the Toledot of Jacob, the last section in the book of Genesis. It answers the question. It answers the question for Israel, and it answers the question for us. We all suffer. Suffering is part of the human condition in a fallen world. And it's especially a part of the human condition for God's people living in a fallen world. But do you, as one of God's people, suffer well? Do you suffer well? Well, I think whether or not you suffer well depends in large part to your theology of suffering. We all have a theology of suffering. But for many, even many Christians, it's not a very biblical theology of suffering. Worldly notions of, of karma or fate or fairness or prosperity thinking too easily creep into our thinking. And one of my main responsibilities as your pastor is to help to prepare you for suffering because if God tarries, you will suffer. Many of, all, of you have already experienced severe suffering in your life and it's my job to help you so when that time comes, and it will, you will begin to, to 
understand your suffering in light of God's word, in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. A study of the life of Joseph is a powerful corrective to an unbiblical theology of suffering. Chapter 37 introduces the whole Joseph story, highlighting the main characters and the plot line for the remainder of Genesis. As I mentioned a moment ago, the focus in this Toledot of Jacob is on Joseph. We've seen this pattern repeatedly. The Toledot of Terah focused on his son Abraham. The Toledot of Isaac focused on his son Jacob. The focus of the Toledot of Jacob is now on his son Joseph. However, as we're going to see, Jacob is going to continue to play an important role. In fact, there are many parallels in this story of Joseph with the story of Jacob, as we're going to see. We're also going to see how Judah plays an important role. Even, even though the only real chapter that focuses on him is the one we're going to look at next week, Lord willing, chapter 38, we must not forget Judah's importance in this Toledot and going forward. We could be mistakenly thinking that, 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 that um, Joseph is, is the chosen promised seed. But out of the 12 sons of Jacob, it is the tribe of Judah that is the chosen line of succession in the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman who crushes the serpent's head. So this chapter uh, introduces, develops, and exposes the fruit of the hatred that Joseph's brothers have for him. In the first half, in verses 2 to 17, the focus is on Joseph and on his favored position and his brothers mounting hatred of him for it. And then the second half, in verses 18 to 36, the focus is on the results of the brothers' hatred. And in this, we're going to see that the suffering of the righteous at the hands of the wicked, but that this suffering is only temporary. And in this, God's hand of providence is going to shine through clearly as he ultimately rights wrongs and blesses the righteous. Now, movement figures prominently in this chapter as the scene shifts, shifts from Hebron to Shechem to Dothan, back to Hebron before descending into Egypt. There are seven short scenes in this passage. First of all, in verses 2 to 4, we see Joseph's favor. Joseph's favor, verses 2 to 4. The section begins, these are the generations of Jacob. Again, Jacob's life was described in the Toledot of Isaac, and it was described as being full of strife. But it also included spiritual transformation. And now his sons are going to follow a similar path in the Toledot of Jacob. We've already seen that the focus here is on Joseph. The story starts in Hebron. Joseph is introduced as a lad of 17, shepherding with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, the concubines that his father had taken as wives. The tension begins to mount right away as Joseph brings a bad report of his brothers to Jacob. Now, we don't know exactly what the issue was here, but, but going to their father about it certainly wasn't going to endear him to his brothers. The sense of the Hebrew word that is used here, dibah, almost, is almost always negative, often referring to gossip or slander. It seems that Joseph was a tattletale. 
In Australia, they say that they call tattletales dabas. When kids are playing on the playground, they, they, they show their knowledge of Hebrew by saying, Dibba dabbers wear nappies. But let me translate, tattletales wear diapers. No one likes a tattletale. But it's going to get worse. Verse 3. Israel loves Joseph more than any of his other sons. Notice how in this passage the names of, of Israel and Jacob are used interchangeably. Joseph was Jacob's favorite because Joseph was the son of his old age. Joseph was also the son of, of Jacob's or Israel's favorite wife, Rachel. Now we saw how parental favoritism ex exacerbated or aggravated an already bad relationship between Jacob and Esau in the last section, in the last Toledot. Well now, Jacob, Israel, is doing the same thing. The animosity that is being provoked here is going to grow much worse when, when Israel makes Joseph a robe of many colors. Now, the only other time that this term is used is to describe Tamar's royal robe in 2 Samuel 13, which is described as a robe with long sleeves. But this was a, a special garment that, that singled Joseph out as having special favor, special status as the favored son in the family. This robe figures prominently in this story. It's mentioned eight times. Israel, was, Israel had given Joseph a, a place in the family that was normally reserved for the eldest brother, for the firstborn son. But remember, Reuben had, had sacrificed his position through immorality with his father's concubine. He'd forfeited his place. Now it seems this, this, it's up for grabs and as we'll see in the interaction between the brothers that there's really nobody who's, who's leading. They're, they're all just, it's just kind of a, a mob rule. But so Joseph here is given the place that was usually reserved for the firstborn son. And Jacob knew a little bit about that as being the secondborn son but who had the place of the firstborn. Deuteronomy uh, 21 verses 15 to 17 actually prohibits this exact favor regarding the children of an unloved wife. And so here the animosity, the bruise is going to become far worse, worse than, than anything that happened between Jacob and Esau. Now we see in verses 5 to 11, Joseph's dreams. In this section, Joseph has two dreams. And these dreams re reveal the, the coming resolution of the coming crisis. There's three sets of dreams in this Toledot, and, and each, each one is, is in sets of two. They're in, they're in pairs. But there's a clear emphasis on dreams in, in this Toledot and specifically in this passage. Not only do we have the, the two dreams themselves, but this word is repeated 12 times in this chapter. The dreams reveal a, a general transition in the way that the Lord communicates with the patriarchs. If, if you remember to this point, although dreams had occurred earlier, it, those dreams were, were primarily theophanies with direct communication from God. But the only theophany in this dream is the, the revelation given to Jacob in 46, 2-4, telling him not to fear to go down to Egypt, for he will indeed return to the promised land. But now we find that the, the dreams are more symbolic in nature and must be interpreted. 
In this, we see a strong comparison with someone else in Scripture, one of many comparisons between Joseph and Daniel. In these dreams, God, though, though not being mentioned directly, is showing his hand. He, he's showing that, that he is the one who's providentially guiding the events of this narrative. The account of the dreams, Kidner reminds us, coming the out, at the outset makes God, not Joseph, the hero of the story. It is not a tale of human success, but of divine sovereignty. Resist the temptation when, when you read stories like this, it, like the one of, of Joseph here, to, to exalt Joseph as a hero. We've already seen some of, of Joseph's flaws, but there's only one hero in the Bible, and that's God. And God here is, is showing his hand, providentially guiding circumstances to his desired end. Joseph's first dream in verses 5 to 8, the, the, the contents of which we're told, he, he communicates to his brothers, and we're told that, that his brothers begin to hate him even more because of this. And in the dream, the, the brothers are, are binding sheaves of grain in the field, and Joseph's sheaf stands upright while his brother's sheaves come and bow down before his sheaf. And this speaks of the authority that Joseph will have over his brothers. And the sheaves are also suggestive of the events of chapter 41, the, the heads of grain in Pharaoh's dream. Also in Joseph's wisdom to stock the granaries and of the famine that leads to the, the, the dream's fulfillment. And so Joseph tells his brothers about the dream. And by, by telling them this, he's, he's essentially saying, God told me that I'm going to rule over you. Now remember, he's the younger brother. He's the younger brother. I wonder, have you ever had someone say to you, God told me such and such about you? I've been corresponding with a friend in recent days who actually had someone in his church tell him that he had a vision of an old wagon wheel and this, this vision supposedly meant th that he was to let go of his old ways and get new ones, that he was supposed to leave his wife and get a new wife. I wish I was joking. But this type of thing happens in, in churches all the time. It happens in churches in the city that people are going around with, with a word from the Lord for people that at best is an imagination of their own heart, if not much, much worse. This is spiritual abuse. But the difference here is that with Joseph, this actually was a dream from the Lord. This actually was a word from the Lord. Now we've seen a general transition away from this kind of revelation in our day. Now God speaks to us primarily through the scriptures. But God spoke to Joseph in this dream. But Joseph shouldn't have spoken about it to his brothers. It seems immature and unwise, possibly even boastful. His brothers get the point. And they reply indignantly, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? And then we're told again that they hated him even more because of this. But the dreams don't stop there and neither does Joseph. He has a second dream in verses 9 to 11, the contents of which reinforce the first dream. 
This time it's the sun and the moon and the stars that bow down before Joseph. And again, he tells his brothers. This time he also tells his father. Well, his father gets the point too and rebukes Joseph for his impudence, saying, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? Now, since Rachel had already died, this, this reference to Joseph's mother must refer to Leah. His brothers are jealous. But Jacob keeps Joseph's dream in mind. And these responses are, are these disparate responses are meant to highlight the wickedness of their brothers before of the brothers before Joseph. They've now added jealousy to their wicked attitude. Eleanor Ross says that when God chooses someone to lead, there may be envy and hatred in those who feel more qualified to have that position of leadership. The leader must give no one occasion to find fault. I wonder what are you jealous of? The 10th commandment tells you not to covet your neighbor's house, wife, servants, or animals, or anything that belongs to your brother. You shall not covet your brother's position or his coat of many colors either. Now this prophetic dream is going to be fulfilled. The brothers will indeed bow before Joseph, and they'll do so repeatedly in chapters 42 and 43 and 44 and 50. But as Joseph begins to live out the events leading up to the fulfillment of this dream, he's going to experience a very severe trial, several, several severe trials. Verses 12 to 17, Joseph now searches for his brothers. The scene here shifts away from Hebron to, Sh to Shechem, where Joseph's brothers are pasturing their father's flock. Israel sends Joseph to check on them. Now their choice of, of Shechem is odd here because remember the mass murder that these brothers had committed in Shechem in chapter 34. Perhaps Israel is, is even afraid for their safety as he was at the end of chapter 34 because of their killing spree. And he asks Joseph to see if it is well with them. Now the Hebrew word here that's translated well is shalom. It's used twice in this verse. The, the word is often translated peace. But the brothers couldn't even speak peacefully to Joseph in verse 4. So I wonder, is this a, a harbinger of the lack of peace that is to come? And given the rising animosity towards Joseph, sending him on this errand seems unwise. But nonetheless, Joseph obeys his father and travels from Hebron to Shechem, away from his home and away from his father. And like his father, who was separated from Isaac for, for tw outside the promised land for 20 years, Joseph is going to leave the promised land and will not see his father for over 20 years. The road to, from Hebron to Shechem isn't a short one. It's, it's 80 kilometers to the north. But when he arrives there, Joseph can't find them. They're, they're nowhere to be seen. But he happens to meet a man wandering in the fields who asks him what he is seeking. And Joseph tells him that he's looking for his brothers and, and asks if, where they're pasturing the flock. But in God's providence... The man happened to overhear them saying that they're headed to Dothan. 
This is no coincidence. God is directing Joseph's path inexorably toward a conflict with his brothers. Now the scene shifts to Dothan, another 20 kilometers northward, further away from his father's house and further away from protection, or so it would seem. Dothan is the same location where the Syrian army surrounded the prophet Elisha and his servant in 2 Kings chapter 6. The servant was terrified, but in verse 17, the Lord opened his eyes and he saw that the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Now, though Joseph will face grave danger in Dothan and his eyes are not opened to any angelic host surrounding him, is every bit as much under the sovereign protection of the Lord as Elisha and his servant. Brothers and sisters, you may face many trials and dangers in your life, but you are every bit as much under the sovereign protection of of the Lord. Nothing can happen to you apart from God's sovereign will. Nothing can happen to you that is not for your good and God's glory. I, I quote Romans 8.28 often. I, I quote it to you and I quote it to me. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Even this, even, even what is about to take place between Joseph and his brothers is going to be worked together for good by God. Joseph finds his brothers at Dothan. And with that, the, the focus shifts from Joseph and his favor to his brothers and the results of their hatred. So the brothers plot to kill Joseph in verses 18 to 24. Verse 18, they saw Joseph coming from afar. Now, he would have been visible from a long way off with that coat on. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer, literally Lord of dreams. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we'll see what becomes of his dreams. They were trying to destroy here not only Joseph, but also God's plans for his authority over them. Now, the brothers had already committed many murders in Shechem. It's not that big of a jump to commit one more. But this is fratricide, one of the most heinous sins imaginable. And here we see the downward progression of sin. Don't be deceived. If not repented of, sin will always lead to worse and worse manifestations of that particular sin. As the Puritan John Owen warned, sin always aims at the utmost. Every time it rises up to tempt or entice, might have its own course, it would go, to, go out to the utmost sin in that kind. He says every unclean thought or glance would be adultery if it could. Every covetous desire would be oppression. Every thought of unbelief would be atheism. Might grow to its head. It is like the grave that is never satisfied. And here, hatred aims at murder. Much as Jesus declared in the Sermon on the Mount, 
You've heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Everyone who insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Matthew 5, 21 and 22. Anger is murder in your heart. We're seeing the fruit of this with the brothers of Joseph. Who are you angry with? By God's grace, repent of it. Turn from it, or it will not destroy the person you are angry with. It will destroy you. Reuben heard of their brother's plans and stepped in to rescue him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. Shed no blood. Throw him into the pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him. Now we're told that Reuben wanted to restore Joseph to Jacob and likely through this to restore himself to his father's good graces and to restore his position as a firstborn after his transgression with his father's concubine. The brothers stripped Joseph of his robe, symbolically stripping him of his favored position in the family and they threw him into the pit. Now the pits that are being referred to here were actually large, deep cisterns that were meant to hold water. But in God's providence, this particular cistern was dry. And Joseph hits the bottom of the pit, but he hasn't really hit bottom yet. Things are going to get much worse for Joseph. Later, he's going to be stripped again of his robe by Potiphar's wife and then cast into prison. Verses 25 to 28. The brothers sell Joseph as a slave. Having done the deed, having thrown their brother into the pit in a show of hard-heartedness, they sit down for a meal. Now this scene is going to be reversed the next time Joseph sits down for a meal with his brothers. The next time they eat in his presence, they will be the ones who are at his mercy. And we wonder, will Joseph show mercy? But again, in God's providence, the brothers see a caravan of Ishmaelite spice traders heading by on their way to Egypt. Now you can see in this passage that the terms Ishmaelite and Midianite are, are used again interchangeably. Both terms refer to the same group of people, the, the rejected sons of Abraham. And this calls to mind the rivalry that we had seen earlier between Ishmael and Isaac. This rivalry that we're, we're seeing here between Joseph and his brothers is, is nothing new, but it's just getting worse and worse and worse as time goes on. And in verses 26 and 27, this time it is Judah who steps in to save Joseph's life. Now later on, we're going to see Judah selflessly substituting himself for Benjamin. But here he's not motivated ultimately by altruism, but by profit. He says, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. Let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And the brothers listened to him. The brothers listened to him. This shows the, ascendancy, uh, the beginnings of the ascendancy of, of Judah in the family. The traders pass by and the brothers pull Joseph up out of the pit and sell him to them for 20 shekels of silver. And selling someone into slavery 
like this was called man-stealing in the scriptures and it is punishable by death under the Mosaic law. Deuteronomy 24, 7. If a man is found stealing one of his brothers of the people of Israel and if he treats him as a slave or sells him, then that thief shall die. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. The brothers deserve to die for their sin. And their sin becomes the basis of Joseph's test for them in chapters 42 and 44. Will they take the grain and their money and flee for safety or will they risk themselves for their brothers Simeon and Benjamin? And they were told that the traitors took Joseph and brought him captive to Egypt. Then in verses 29 to 35, the brothers deceive Jacob. In verse 29, Reuben returns to the pit and finds Joseph gone. And in a visible demonstration of sorrow, he, he tears his clothes. Now Reuben is not going to be the only one who tears his clothes in, in this chapter or this Toledot. And Reuben is going to rebuke his brothers in 42.22. He's going to say to them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. He's going to rebuke them, but not yet. He returns to his brothers and laments, The boy is gone. And I, where shall I go? He was the eldest son and he was ultimately responsible. But now that Joseph is gone, gone too are his hopes of restoration to that position. The only answer to Reuben's distress is the slaughtering of a goat to cover the brothers' tracks. They dip the robe in the goat's blood and bring it to their father saying, this we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. It sounds like a scene from, from a murder mystery where the police ask relatives to identify the body. But there's not even a hint of familial tenderness. It's cold and aloof. They, they make no reference to Joseph as our brother, but only as your son. And the word brother is repeated 21 times in this chapter. Like the repetition of the word brother in the description of Cain's murder of Abel, the word brother is conspicuous here by its absence. It highlights the horror of their crime. And Jacob rightly identifies the robe, but wrongly identifies the blood, concluding that a fierce animal has devoured Joseph and torn him to pieces. This, this bitterly echoes Jacob's deception of Isaac, where a son's clothing and the remains of a goat are used as the, as the tools of deception where, where Jacob clothes himself with Esau's clothing and then covers his, his arms and his neck with, with goat skins in order to deceive his father into thinking that he is Esau. So the brothers here are, to, are seen to be following in the deceiving footsteps of Jacob. And even though Jacob has been forgiven by Esau and forgiven by God, Jacob is, ta is tasting the temporal consequences of his sin. Now it's Jacob's turn to tear his garments. He puts on sackcloth, another way to express grief in that culture. And he mourned for many days, refusing to be comforted by his family, expecting to carry his grief to his grave. Joseph, his favorite son, is gone. 
And finally, verse 36, Joseph arrives in Egypt. The Midianites were told had taken him to Pharaoh and sold him to Potiphar, an office of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. And again, in God's providence, Potiphar is a high-ranking official in Egypt. And though Joseph is here as a slave, there's, there's a hint here that Joseph's position is beginning to rise again. He's actually beginning to rise. Now, Joseph is never again going to return home alive except to bury his father in the Machpelah cave. Genesis is going to end with Joseph and his brothers in Egypt. But even there, there's hope and expectation of deliverance as the scene is set for Exodus. The, the Lord has already recalled these, these, uh, these, revealed these events to Abraham in Genesis 15, verses 13 and 14, where the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on that nation, and that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. So, so the message here for Israel is that, that they can trust that God will be faithful to his covenant promises, no matter how it looks, no matter how bad it looks for Joseph. Joseph could trust that God is faithful to his covenant promises. Israel could trust that God is faithful to his covenant promises. We can trust that God is faithful to his covenant promises. God is not mentioned in this passage directly, but he is here nonetheless. Spoiler warning, flip to chapter 45, verses 7 and 8. Chapter 45, verses 7 and 8. God sent me, Joseph speaking to his brothers, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh, the Lord of all his house, to rule over the, all the land of Egypt. This was God's plan from the beginning. And now flip to the end of Genesis, Genesis 50, verse, verse 20. Again, Joseph speaking to his brothers. As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. To see what's happening here in, in this passage, this is, this is the, the, one of the key passages on the, province, provi on the providence of God. We, we see God's sovereignty over all things. Yes, we see man's responsibility, but we see God working out all things to achieve his ultimate purposes. God used the wickedness of Joseph's brothers to fulfill the dreams that had made them so angry in the first place. God used the wickedness of Joseph's brothers to save many from famine, especially to save them from famine. Friends, no matter how hard the trial, God is in control. God overrules and even uses the wickedness that is inflicted against you, the wickedness of, of men to bring about salvation. Sidney Gradana says, This passage is to comfort Israel with the knowledge that God can even use evil human deeds to fulfill His plan of salvation. 
Here we see God's sovereign care. Here we see God's covenant faithfulness. We see God's sovereign care for you. We see God's covenant faithfulness for you. God would deliver Israel into Egypt and would preserve them there in order to preserve the seed of promise. God uses the wickedness of the brothers to achieve his glorious and good ends. Doesn't this call to mind another situation in which one person suffers at the hand of his brothers in order to bring deliverance to many? Friends, Joseph is a type of Christ. Joseph prefigures Christ. He's a typological representation of Christ. Joseph's brothers handed him over for 20 pieces of silver. Judas will hand Jesus over for 30 pieces of silver. But Jesus doesn't just deliver from famine. Jesus delivers from death and hell from sin and ultimately delivers from the wrath of God that we all deserve. Jesus, God incarnate, sank far lower than Joseph, but he also rose much higher. He is now ascended to the Father. Friends, God uses the wickedness of men to achieve his purposes. Acts 2, 23 and 24. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 to 11, we, we see that Jesus was in the form of God. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of, of human men. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name above all names so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. Friends, the story of Joseph is an encouragement for those who are following in the footsteps of Jesus. You might be brought low, even brought low like Joseph, but you will be exalted like Christ. 1 Peter 5, 6 and 7, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. Brothers and sisters, no matter what it looks like, like in your life right now, God cares for you in Christ. He sent His Son to die for your sins. What more proof do you need? Romans 8.18 For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing. They're not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. None of the suffering that Joseph experienced was worth comparing and none of the suffering that you experience is worth comparing with the glory that has been purchased for you by Jesus Christ. 
Jesus died to purchase for you eternal life in glory. Let that guide your theology of suffering. Let's pray together. Our glorious God, so often we see in Scripture that your ways are not our ways, that your ways are infinitely higher, infinitely wiser, infinitely glorious, infinitely more loving than our ways. Lord, deliver us from our puny thoughts of you. Help us, Lord, in the light of all of the circumstances of life, whether it is in, in times of joy or times of trial. Help us, Lord, to consider our experience, to consider our lives in light of the gospel. Lord, help us to look to you, our sovereign, loving, wise, and glorious Heavenly Father, so we might glorify you in the midst of whatever happens to us, ultimately, by your hand. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.